0: Starting out and trying to get the product market fit, put it out into the market and it's so depressing because no one cares or no one listens. We need to take on the mentality of small experiments. Sometimes people think that entrepreneurship is about risk taking. It's not. It's mitigating risks in smart ways. So I'm Dory Clark, and I write business books. My most recent one is called Entrepreneurial You, and I teach part-time for the Fuqua School of Business at Duke. And... I am most passionate about ensuring that talented entrepreneurs and professionals are able to really get their true talents known and recognized in a very noisy marketplace. So often, people with great ideas and something to contribute just aren't really able to have that recognized because there's so much noise out there. And so I help people with books and consulting and speaking that I do figure out how to break through and make sure that they're able to make their fullest contribution.
1: Yeah. And how did you get into that?
0: Well, for me, it actually started early on. I originally thought that I was going to go into academia. After I graduated college, I went to graduate school and got a master's degree in theological studies, and I thought I'd get a PhD. But unfortunately, I got turned down by every single doctoral program that I applied to. So I had to come up with a plan B for myself. So I ended up doing a variety of different things. I was a political reporter for about a year, and then I got laid off, and I couldn't find any other journalism jobs. And then I went to work on political campaigns and actually got to be on a couple of pretty high profile ones. There was a gubernatorial race in Massachusetts. There was a presidential race that I was a spokesperson for. Both those candidates lost in my early 20s. I was hitting a lot of walls when it came to my professional life. But ultimately, what really turned the tide for me and brought me into entrepreneurship, ironically, was the next job that I took, which was being a nonprofit executive director. I ran a bicycling advocacy nonprofit for a couple of years. And during that time, I realized how to run a business. I think a lot of times there's a stereotype that nonprofits are the exact polar opposite of business and entrepreneurship. But that's not really true. Because in order to be a successful nonprofit leader, you have to be really entrepreneurial. I learned how to run a business, how to be scrappy and get things done. After a couple of years of that, I decided to open my own business. And so I've been doing that for the past 11 years.
1: And I just want to point out, I love your positive energy. I think just people listening can hear it in your voice. Have you always been this positive?
0: (laughs) I think yes is the answer. It's probably dispositional. It also probably doesn't hurt That I grew up in the South. I think sometimes I meet people from cultures that are a little less ebullient. I'm living in New York, for instance, kind of got the New York skepticism where they say, is this for real? (laughs) (laughs) It actually is for real. This is kind of what from North Carolina are like, I think.
1: Where were you born and raised in North Carolina?
0: I grew up in a little golf resort called Pinehurst, North Carolina, which, if you are a golfer, is a location of great reverence. If you are not a golfer, you have probably not heard of it.
1: When you were a child, did you see yourself being an author?
0: As a kid, I was really interested in books. I loved reading, and I did actually dream about being an author one day. It took quite a while to get there, though. For me, I got really serious about the idea of writing a book in 2009. And so I set it as my New Year's resolution. That was going to be the year that I got a book contract. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, I did not. I worked very hard to try to do it. And in fact, that the first six months of the year, I wrote three different book proposals because my theory was that at least one of them would resonate with some publisher and I would be able to sell something. And the truth was no one wanted. I I had an agent, but she wasn't able to interest anyone in any of the proposals because I did not have a big enough platform, quote unquote. That's a term they use in the publishing industry, which basically refers to how famous you already are. Because a lot of publishers, they're very risk averse. They only want to work with you if you're already pretty well known and they feel like you have a built-in fan base that will buy your book. was of course extremely frustrating to me so i i kind of had to go back to the drawing board and create my own fan base by blogging very intensively. But finally in 2011, I was able to do that. And I ultimately got a book contract, Reinventing You, my first book, as a result of a blog post that I had initially done for the for the Harvard Business Review.
1: Yeah. And before we jump into that too much, can you tell us what that felt like, you know, that, that rejection and how you were able to go to the drawing board and just say, I'm going to build up an audience that so says there's a guy out there or girl listening who have zero and they're facing the exact same thing?
0: Yeah. I think that so often in our culture, there is the myth of the overnight success. And it's just that we haven't seen all of the, the effort that goes before you know having the book released or having the album come out or whatever your genre is. I have really been intent in my work and wanting to try to bring out more information about the process because I think the more people understand what the steps are and the fact that they can be so circuitous and that it is such an elaborate and sometimes discouraging process, I think that makes it easier for other people to understand that if they're hitting roadblocks, if things aren't falling into place immediately, that's okay. That's actually normal. It's not really a reason to give up. So for me, you know, I I feel like what usually happens if you hit a roadblock of any kind is that people do one of two things. There is the blame out response and the blame in response. And, you know, this this is not the most Zen advice, but I feel like that this has been important for me and I think can be important for other people. So many people blame in, meaning, oh, I got my book proposal rejected or they didn't take my blog or whatever it is. You know, I didn't get this piece of work. I must not be good enough. Oh, they must have evaluated this and I somehow don't measure up. And believing that means that you're likely to give up. Because, oh, they've rendered the judgment. Okay, it's not there. Instead, I'm a big fan of blame out. <laughs> Meaning, what is wrong with these people? Why do they not see that I have something to contribute? And <laughs> it's, for me, that gave me enough fire to keep going. That I was going to show them. That I was going to make them regret. You know, not in like a mafia way, but in, in at least a general way. I was going to make them regret that they had not been the one to say yes to me. Much like I am sure that the people who read Harry Potter and passed on it, I would like to think they cry themselves to sleep every night (laughs) because of that. And J.K. Rowling knows that. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to feel. I wanted to be able to be proven so successful in the end that the people who did not help me along the way would recognize that and feel bad about it. And I thought, all right, I'm just going to keep going until that is a reality.
1: Tell us what, what you started doing. You had that inner drive. You wanted to prove them wrong, right? I guess, did you have like a zero audience at that point? And what you started, you said you were blogging, but can you give us more details on what you're doing and how you've grown your audience since then?
0: Yeah, I'll definitely walk you through the process. So I was certainly starting out with a zero audience. I mean, like everybody else, I had a few friends, maybe that would read it, but not anything more substantial than that. So the first step, this is something that's known as the ladder strategy, where essentially you're kind of working your way up the ladder of prominence. And so the first step is really, if blogging is your channel, for instance, and this the same principles apply to almost everything, you want to start by creating your own content on your own site meaning it doesn't literally have to be your website like doryclark.com, but something that you can easily control. And the reason for that is that early on, if you've literally never done anything, no one's going to want to take a chance on you. They want to see something. They want some proof of what you can do. And so you need to create some sample material for them. So if you do have a website, sure, you can blog on that. Otherwise, it's very easy for anybody these days to blog on LinkedIn. You can do it on Medium. There's other channels like that that are open to anybody. And you can start doing that and practicing and just learning more about what kinds of topics pique your interest what voices you know doing that enough so that you've created some stuff that you feel reasonably proud about and then once you have that once you have samples that you can show people then you can begin the networking and the pitching process a really good step Is that if you do happen to know people who write for more prominent publications, it's a great idea to reach out to them and ask if you are close enough, you know, for this to be appropriate, if they would be willing to make an introduction between you and their editor, or at least advise you somehow on the process. A warm lead like that is always the best thing. And so that was something that I did the first place that I was able to break in and start blogging for was the Huffington Post. And I was able to do that because I knew a number of people who blogged there. And most people actually were not able to be helped me, but I literally went through about half a dozen people that I knew. And eventually a guy named Michael knew the editor well enough that he said, sure, I'll connect you. And within a day, I was done. I was in. And that was extraordinarily valuable. Now, the part b here is that you may not know anyone who has a pre-existing connection in which case you do cold pitches and let's be honest the numbers you know the hit rate on cold pitches is not great but if you are persistent it doesn't have to be great all you need is one and so what i did just briefly and we can talk more about this austin if you'd like but but very briefly i actually went through this process very deliberately at the end of 2012, I decided that I wanted to blog for more publications than I already was. And so I made a spreadsheet of about two dozen publications that I would like to write for, you know, possible targets. And I went through and I created this spreadsheet checking, number one, do they have a blog? Number two, do they accept outside contributors for, to their blog? Meaning, is it only staffers who write it or do they also have outside people like potentially me? Number three, I got the address. I had to hunt for this. You have to really hunt for it online, but I found the addresses of the editors of these blogs and put it into the spreadsheet. I then made a pitch email, just a cold pitch email, just a couple paragraphs explaining who I was, some links to samples of my work so they could see it, and then a little explanation of the kinds of things I could write about for them and sent it off. Out of these 24, 25-ish publications, the vast majority completely blew me off. Only three people got back to me. However, out of that three, two of them, the correspondence almost immediately fizzled. We traded one or two emails, then they stopped responding for reasons I have no idea. But one of them turned into something for me. And it turned out to be very fortuitous. It was an editor at Forbes, and they were looking for more contributors, and they were eager to work with me. And so within about 10 days, I was up on their site and had become a regular contributor.
1: Tired of digging through your sock drawer without finding a match? Oh yeah, and the only ones you can find have holes in them? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore because BlackSocks.com has your feet covered. On episode 13, I interviewed the founder of BlackSocks.com, and his company was actually the first one to have an online subscription service. Yeah, we're talking about mid-90s, so you know they're going to be around for the long haul. Their socks are delivered hassle-free every four months to your door. And speaking of free... Are currently offering free shipping on all orders. So go check out blacksocks.com for more information. Now, back to the show. At this point in time, what else were you doing? Because you were trying to write these books, right? But did you have a job that you're doing as well on the side?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, one of the key principles that I try to live by, and this is something that is at the core of my newest book, Entrepreneurial You, is the importance of cultivating full revenue streams. Because the more you do that, the more different ways money is coming in the door for you, the more freedom and flexibility you have. If you're only making money one way, let's say a day job or something like that, or even if, you, if you're an entrepreneur, maybe if you just do one thing, like, oh, I just coach. It's a little risky, honestly. If the market changes, if there's some kind of a shakeup, you don't have a lot of security with that. And so creating multiple revenue streams for me is a big Yes, I did certainly have other work that I was doing and I tried to make a a conscious effort to diversify that work as well So at the time the core of my business was that I was a marketing strategy consultant So companies would hire me to do a mark plan or social for them That was a big thing But over the years i've worked to try to create other revenue streams related to that as well And so today I actually earn my money in seven different ways I do still some of that consulting. I do executive coaching I give paid speeches. I write books now, of course, which I get paid for. Sometimes, in fact, get paid for blogging depends on the venue. I do business school teaching. I have created some online courses that people can register for, and I also do some affiliate marketing. So all of those things are different ways that that I bring in revenue, which insulates me from risk, which I think is one of the most important doing as entrepreneurs.
1: Could you tell us about, kind of interested in the online courses, how you got into that and what you're able to develop there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have been teaching for many years at different levels. Starting when I was pretty recently out of college, I was 25 years old. I actually started doing university teaching part-time. And so for five to seven years or something, I taught part-time at various universities. And then a few years ago, I got pretty intensively into business school teaching. And so now I do executive education programs, things like that. I had a lot of experience in the classroom and sharing ideas. And that was something that I was, that I cared about. That I was passionate about. I began to realize the movement as we've all seen is toward doing just about everything online. I mean, people are so busy and people are also so global that it becomes challenging sometimes to, to you know, to get people in a room. There's huge numbers of adults that are out of college or out of grad school, but they recognize that if they want to be successful in today's economy, you can't stop learning. Even if you've only been out of school a few years, if you just say, Oh, you know, I'm done. I don't need to learn anything the rest of my life. I mean, can you imagine? The software is changing. The technology is changing. The social media channels are changing. All the ways we're doing things, you have to keep up. And so, trying to find a way that you can connect with a global professional audience and give them the material that they desperately want and need, but in an asynchronous fashion, a way that That somebody can, if somebody has a whole weekend that they want to spend on something, they can binge on that if they want. Or if somebody is in Tokyo and it's a completely different time zone than you, how can you reach them? And I realized that online courses were a huge opportunity to take the knowledge that I had gleaned over the years through my research and had been sharing in some of the world's top business schools and to be able to put it into an online format. So I've actually, so far, created three online courses. I'll probably be creating more over the years. My flagship is called Recognized Expert, and it is a a pretty intensive course as well as an online community of people who are working to basically build their brands as recognized experts in their field, whatever that is. If they're a coach, if they're a consultant, we have attorneys, we have psychologists, we have horticulturalists, you know, literally anything you do, opportunities to get known and reap the benefits of that. I've also done some shorter so-called masterclasses, which I have available online. One is called Be More Productive, and another is called the Rapid Content Creation Masterclass. And creating those has been really a great experience in terms of connecting with students and, and finding ways to help people. It also has been great for me as an entrepreneur in terms of diversifying my income. In the past year, in the past 12 calendar months, I have brought in about $220,000 from online courses, which as you can imagine, is a pretty pretty good income supplement. So it's something that I think is really the wave of the future in a lot of ways.
1: How about you've said your entrepreneur journey started about 11 years ago. Can you talk about that journey like leading up to today and maybe if you want to just Tell us briefly about some of your other two books and the one you're writing now.
0: Yeah, thank you, Austin. When I first started my business eleven years ago, I had, I think, a pretty traditional sense of what it was or what it could be. I thought, okay, I'll do marketing strategy consulting. And I looked around me at, at other in the community, you know, the sort of role models that I had at my immediate disposal. And I I thought, all right, great. You know, this is what I'll do. And but I realized in the first few years of my business, I actually ended up changing my business model a lot of times and i think that for many entrepreneurs this is a necessary step. originally i actually thought that i would do political consulting because you know that had been the thing that i had done essentially most recently i had you know worked doing political communications and i thought oh i can i can do more of this but it turned out that some of the earliest people that wanted to work with me, when I sort of hung out my shingle and said, hey, I have this business, some of the earliest people that approached me were people from nonprofits, There were people from government organizations, they were small businesses. And I realized, oh, it would actually be pretty foolish of me to turn away this business. I decided, okay, maybe I won't do political consulting or I'll at least do it as just a small piece of my business. Instead, I'll broaden it to marketing and patients. That was pivot number one. It's always essential to understand who your customer is and to listen for what they're asking you for. And so for any entrepreneur who's just starting out and trying to get the product market fit, that's an important step. Another pivot that I made early on, this in a lot of ways was the inspiration of my first book, Reinventing You, was that there were so many changes in my business model and in my careers early on to the right business for me. I originally thought that most of the consulting that I would do would be about PR, public relations. And it made sense in terms of my background and my skill set. That was something I knew well from having been a reporter, certainly something that I had done for most of the political candidates that I had worked for. But the interesting thing, was that as I was starting my business, and this is around 2006, 2007, social media was just starting to take hold. Facebook was coming out. It was 2006, I believe, was the first year that Facebook became available to outside of academia. It became available to the general public. Twitter was launched in 2006. YouTube was launched in 2006. So it's really an inflection point where these channels were just getting started. And also simultaneously, newspapers were really beginning to suffer. It had always been the case that if you were a PR person who did a good job for your clients, as long as they were reasonably interesting, you could get them coverage in the major daily newspaper. Oh, maybe even front page of a section for their press conference or something like that. That all became enormously hard to do because newspapers were laying off reporters, They were slicing their page count because they had less advertising. They were suffering. And so as a PR person, it became much harder to get coverage for your clients. And of course, your clients would remember what it was like three years before and would say, you slacker, you're not doing your job. Why aren't you getting us on the front page of the Metro section of the Boston Globe? And so it's just this constant dispiriting exercise because you're working as hard as you can and it's not getting the clients the results they want. So they're mad. I realized that was not the business I wanted to be in. That was just depressing. And so I shifted again from PR indications to more marketing strategy, which would enable me to do more with social media, which was the place that had growth momentum in which people were interested in trying to figure out. And it would kind of get me out of being pigeonholed as the PR consultant in what was very much a declining industry. Those were some early changes that I made in my business model. And those experiences are things that very much informed all of us, whether it's Reinventing You or Stand Out, which is about really establishing a premium brand in the marketplace. And then finally, Entrepreneurial You, which is about how do you make money? How do you actually monetize your ideas and build a sustainable business?
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Give us a little bit of preview.
0: Yes. Writing Entrepreneurial You for me was a great experience because I saw so many of my friends and colleagues in the marketplace who were able to be very successful doing a pretty broad variety of things. Some of them were being, you know, top podcasters, for instance. Podcasting, as you know personally, Austin, is a booming industry. Some people were just crushing it at it. I wanted to understand what they were doing. Other people were bringing in huge amounts of revenue on YouTube, blogging, or they were starting mastermind groups or doing conferences or workshops, or some of them we're doing online courses. All of these things were a little mysterious to me, frankly. I knew a lot about the traditional ways that sort of speakers and consultants made money. I mean, you know, yes, you can give a paid talk, you can do some consulting or coaching. I didn't really have a lot of experience beyond that. And I wanted to learn. And so the book, in a lot of ways, gave me the excuse to interview about fifty top professionals who made high six figure, some you know very robust seven figure incomes as basically solo practitioners or very close to it. And I wanted to understand what it was that they were doing. And so it really was a chance for me in a lot of ways to have informational interviews and get to see their playbook of how they were deciding what markets to enter and how they were really able to operationalize that. And for whatever path they chose to be able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars from it, I wanted to present this book because for me, transparency is the solution. In our culture, there are so many taboos about money and talking about money. And frankly, it just leaves people in the dark because you have a lot of really talented young entrepreneurs and they understand, they see like, okay, there's all these people making a lot of money, but how, what are they doing? And I wanted to be able to make it extremely clear so that hopefully more can become successful.
1: And could you tell us about some of those people, especially... From my point of view, what were this top podcasters doing? Because obviously, this is going to be a top podcast as well.
0: Hell yes! <laughs> well, podcasting is a great example. So, of course, you know one one of the uh, the flagship examples we have is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and one of the things that he did that I thought was most interesting most fascinating was an early decision that he made and i think that this speaks to a lot of business strategy there was a a sort of understanding at the time you know broad understanding that podcasting was nice Podcasting was a good way to build your brand to get known, but you couldn't make money at podcasting, right? Everybody. But John Lee Dumas actually questioned that premise. He said, well, you know, does everybody know that? And the one variable that he changed, you know, very dramatically and was able to really just throttle this. It was an interesting test of a market principle. The primary way that people make money directly from a podcast is through advertising and sponsorship. The trick with that, of course, is that there's your number of monthly downloads. Now, almost everybody was doing podcasts once a week and sometimes even less, but let's say an average would be once a week for a podcast. So, okay, that's four episodes. So the question is, how many subscribers can you get who are downloading each of these episodes? And typically they'd say, let's just pretend that 10,000 people are listening to, to your episodes, they're subscribing. So, okay, 40,000 people are getting a download per Great. John Lee Dumas had a pretty smart idea, which is what if we can take these same basic facts, but throttle it up? If the money is based on the number of downloads, what if instead of doing it once a week, we did it every day. Now that sounds incredibly hard and incredibly taxing, but he also created a formula for that. He asked everybody the same set of questions. You know, he didn't have to do a huge amount of independent research for each guest beforehand. It was standardized. And he would do all of his recording. He's changed it over time, but the initial idea was he would do all of his recording one day a week. So let's pretend it's Monday he would have seven back-to-back interviews, you know, tight, 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 boom. And he records them and he gets it done for the week. He puts them up. What essentially would be the same numbers, even if all the variables are the same, he is 7Xing it because instead of coming out four times a week, he's coming out 28 times a week or 30 times a week. That is an immediate way that he was able to juice the downloads and therefore interest sponsors and get a lot of momentum around sponsorship dollars. Then as that was coming in, it enabled him to build a bit of an empire around it. He was getting a lot of attention because he was creating a lot of episodes. He was making a lot of money, which got him noticed by a lot of people. And so then he was able to leverage that into creating an online community called Podcasters Paradise, where people would pay at the time $1,200 for a lifetime membership. And so that was juicing his revenues even more, he was sharing that data publicly. And so people began to notice him more and more and say, wow, this guy's killing it in podcasting which created a virtuous circle drawing yet even more people in. So sometimes even just tweaking one variable, even just questioning the one thing that everybody knows can really dramatically change the results that you're able to achieve.
1: Could you share with us maybe one other story of, you know, the people that you talked about in the book and maybe someone can relate not to podcasting but something else?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Another story which is one of my favorites in the book, Entrepreneurial You. I actually will just pick a podcaster for this, but her story, she happens to be a podcaster, but the story isn't about podcasting, which I think many people can perhaps draw their own parallels to. Her name is Faye Wu and she lives in Boston and she has a podcast. She's been doing it this point about maybe 18 months or two years, but her podcast is not a smash success like John Lee Dumas's is. She has gotten maybe 20,000 downloads of her podcast, period, over 18 months to two years. These are not huge numbers at all. She has not taken her podcast to the stars. However, you know, and, and of course, that's the situation for the vast majority. However, the really interesting thing about what Faye has done is that she has managed to build an incredibly successful business for herself as a result of her podcast, even though the podcast itself is not world famous. And the reason for that is that she has chosen guests that that she finds personally interesting and has a personal connection with. Now, Faye is a branding person. She does a little bit of marketing, branding, you know, web design, that sort of thing. And so she's found people as podcast guests that she really connects with what they do and connects with their art. In fact, some of her early guests were these circus performers with Cirque du Soleil. And she just thought what they did was amazing. And she wanted to interview them and learn more about it. But fascinating thing is that she has been able to convert 25% of her podcast guests to being clients of her business for branding and marketing. Now, in no way was this a an overt strategy. I think in many ways it would backfire if it were, because if somebody felt like, oh, she's only having me on her show or, you know, whatever the case may be, she's only interviewing me for her blog because she wants my money, because she wants me to hire her down the road, that would engender a level of skepticism that would prevent any relationship from being able to be built. But Faye was coming at it from such a genuine place that really for her, her podcast was a way of just networking with people that she admired and thought were doing something really cool in the world. And she was able to build such deep relationships with them where they related to her and trusted her so much. 25% of the time, the people actually came to her afterwards and said, Faye, could we work together? Could you do something for me? Could you help with my website or could you help with my branding strategy? And so she has been able to really build a freelance business as a result of that. I think the lesson here, is that even if on the surface your activity is the same, oh, you have a podcast, there are a lot of ways that you can monetize that activity because fundamentally, it's not about what the tactic is. It's not about what the channel is. It's about using it for relationship building. And it's about how you want to develop the relationships.
1: Like I said, I appreciate you sharing those two stories. Like I said, in closing, what do you think is most important for an entrepreneur who's listening or getting started? Maybe they just started their own business and they need some help. What would you suggest?
0: Yeah. So if, if an entrepreneur is just getting started, I think that one of the most important philosophies that they can take in that, that will be helpful to them throughout the course of their business, no matter what they're doing, is really embracing what in the world of Silicon Valley has come to be known as the lean startup methodology. And, you know, of course that sounds maybe a little technical. I'll just give a quick example of how this played out. This is a story that I tell in Entrepreneurial You. There's a guy named Danny Eney out of Canada, and he was a marketing expert and he decided he would do an online course. And this was going to be his magnum opus. This was going to be everything. He called it marketing that works. And it was going to be his big official contribution where he shared everything you need to know about marketing right? So very exciting. The problem was that he marketed this and one person bought it. This was so depressing for him. Oh, it, was, it was terrible. And so he said that literally for six months of his life, he basically had spent all his time creating something for one guy. Marketing it worked medication. out to less than minimum wage. It was just a disaster. But so the next time, It took him a few years to feel confident enough to do another online class. But this time around, he decided he would do something different because he just did not want this to happen again. And so what he did was he emailed his list and he said, hey, guys, I am thinking about doing a course. Here's what it would be about. If you are interested in this, I will give you an early bird discount if you are my beta testers. And in exchange, you can offer feedback, we will essentially co-create the course, you can tell me what you're most interested in. And he put this out there. And he said the reason he did it, it was not some big strategy. It was just he wanted to give himself an out in case the same thing happened. If one person registered, he was just going to call it quits and say, Oh, you know what, I'm not going to do that. But instead, this one actually was a good idea. It was popular and people signed up and he was able to create the course with them based on their feedback, based on what they were interested in. Not, you know, some concoction of what he thought they needed and then nobody bought it, but instead what they really were interested in. The pilot itself made money and then once he was ready to sell it more broadly, he knew the course would do well because it was exactly what his audience was asking for. I think for all of us, it's easy to get caught up in this idea of creating. Creating this perfect product or creating this perfect service and spending so much time overthinking it. And then you put it out into the market and it's so depressing because no one cares or no one listens. Instead, We need to take on the mentality of small experiments, small iterative experiments like Danny Eni did the second time around so that you're not taking huge risks. Sometimes people think that entrepreneurship is about risk taking. It's not. It's actually about mitigating risks in smart ways. So you put out a little trial balloon, you see how it goes. And if people are interested, you keep going more and more in that direction. If we can follow that, it makes entrepreneurship far more likely to be successful. And that's really the lesson that I try to hammer home in Entrepreneurial U.
1: Thank you for coming on and sharing those stories and your story with us. If someone wanted to say thank you or what's the best way to reach you and tell us about when your book's coming out.
0: Yeah, Austin, thank you so much. So Entrepreneurial U is coming out on October 3rd. And if folks would like to get in touch or learn more, they can find me and 400 free articles that I've written for places like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review at my website, doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. And I'll also mention, especially for your audience, which I know is made up of a lot of entrepreneurs and working toward becoming entrepreneurs. I actually have a free resource. It is a Entrepreneurial You self-assessment workbook, and it is 88 questions that lead you through how to get clearer on your entrepreneurial idea and be able to develop multiple income streams from it. And so if people would like to get this free entrepreneurial use self-assessment, they can go to doryclark.com entrepreneur.
1: All right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on.
0: Thanks, Austin. All right.
1: And if you want timestamp show notes for this episode, you can find them at millionaire-interviews.com backslash and then the episode number. And for those of you that are curious about timestamp show notes, basically that means instead of searching around for a quote or a key point in the episode, we have them so you can automatically click on a certain time in the episode and it'll jump you to it. So instead of searching around for 30 minutes, trying to find one of those key points or quotes will automatically jump you there. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.